the audio quality won't be up to par. Usually I, I hear that I have a bedroom voice on the other podcasts. It puts people to sleep <laughs> or creeps them out, uh, depending on your viewpoint. But um, on this, in this case, it'll be a little bit more of a normal voice. So, Okay. I'm Essen Zafar, and welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity and social, political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every other week, we interview one person to get their perspective on structural inequality, and today I'm joined by Anna Stansberry, a PhD candidate at Harvard University. A little afraid as to this is a different topic but like um i'm, a, I'm not afraid is not the right word but i i'm curious about like what will happen to this kind of like trend of gentrification right like what does yeah. that mean for urban centers and all this stuff and people are saying it's not going to be permanent but i i don't know my gut tells me that this is a we're, we're approaching a fundamental shift of some kind so i share that instinct i i think i don't know i think the model is going to be one day a week in the office or remote yeah. work with retreats and people are going to be living in places where they like the amenities and it's going to totally change stuff but yeah we'll see we'll see yeah because there's a cost right so there's a cost to switching um there's a companies have incurred a cost to switch to remote work and now you're gonna there's no incentive to switch back to in-person right. work i guess unless you're netflix yeah exactly. rebase things once everybody show i saw up that in person. <laughs> yeah yeah um okay well thanks for um for joining me for this podcast normally i have a very nice setup mic and everything but that's sitting in la of course i didn't bring it with me here so we have the zoom setup um it's not uh you know it's not kind of what i prefer uh because i don't have like multiple channels and things like that my student sound editor can't work their magic with it but yeah i think we'll still be good Okay. Well, I'm glad to have somebody else with another British British accent. Yes. Okay. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, I went to a British prep school. No way. Yeah, in Kuwait of all places. Oh wow. Yeah, we used to have cardigans and everything. Cardigans. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a mark of being British. They, I hadn't thought a, about a red that. cardigan. Yeah. Right. I had a red cardigan uh, at my school too, actually. Did you? Okay. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. We have something in common, but I've yeah. I lost my accent because I think I got bullied a lot when I came to the U.S. That's fair enough. I, you know, say different things like the bin. Oh, the bin. Or There's rubber. Pavement. Oh no, that was a bad Instead one. I made that eraser. mistake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they, they beat the accent off uh, you know out of me but so i just kind of want to start getting to the topic of this paper that you wrote with larry summers uh which you which came out this year just a couple of months ago in may i think was the publication date if i remember mm -hmm. correctly so very relevant um and this paper is on worker power it's titled the decline i think it's titled the declining worker power hypothesis mm -hmm. um can you tell me a little bit about uh, the findings uh from the paper absolutely so um what we argue in the paper is that the decline of worker power in the u.s economy has been one of the major economic trends that has shaped the economy over the last four to five decades and that we can 
trace or see the impacts of that decline, not only in terms of income inequality, but also in terms of other macroeconomic variables that people have been looking at and trying to explain, like the rise in corporate valuations and stock market valuations, rising corporate profitability in some sectors, declining unemployment in some places and in some industries before the current pandemic. And so that this decline in worker power has been really big, a seismic structural shift in the US economy that goes beyond unions, but includes unions, and has had these impacts that are felt throughout the economy. That's the overarching hypothesis. And how do you define worker power uh, in the paper or even just generally, how would you define it? So we think of worker power as a very broad concept. And the way we define it to be precise is worker power is workers' ability to share in the profits that are generated by their company. So if you're working at a company that is in this very cutthroat competitive industry where really the company is just earning barely enough to stay in business, barely enough to provide the required return on capital, to pay its suppliers, to pay its workers, there's not really any excess profits that that company is earning. So worker power in that context is relatively meaningless. But in the context of the world we live in, where a lot of companies do earn what an economist would call excess profits, profits above and beyond the bare minimum needed to stay in business, then worker power determines how much of those profits goes to workers versus going to shareholders. In practice, what does that mean? The most obvious thing is unions. So unions uh, are a formal mechanism by which workers can bargain with the managers of the firm to receive higher wages or higher compensation that enables them to share in those profits. But it can also be other things. So it could be, for example, that there are norms that workers should be paid a certain amount or treated in a certain way. Or it could be that those norms get eroded. So one of the things that we've seen is with the rise of um, shareholder value maximization doctrine, with the rise of pressures through the capital markets on companies to continuously achieve efficiency gains, and one of those efficiency gains is cutting worker pay, we've seen pressures to erode those norms in terms of how workers are treated and what they're paid. And that too is an erosion of worker power in our firm. Is worker power, is it a one-to-one -one ratio? So if the corporation has one quantum of power, one quantum of power, the worker power declines by an equivalent amount? Or so in other words, is it a, or is it kind of a non-zero sum game? In other words, I, corporations can have tons of power, but workers can have tons of power in the same system. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think um, getting to these definitions of what we mean by power is, is difficult, but really important. The way, we, the way we divide it, and this probably isn't the last word on the matter, is we think of power in terms of the power in different markets. So if we're thinking purely in the economic sense of power, we're abstracting away right now from like power in the political system and just saying economic power. You can have, as a company, power in a product market. And what that means is you're able to set a price in the market for the good that you sell that gives you the ability to earn these excess profits. You know, when we typically talk about monopoly power, that's what we're talking about is companies' power to sell at a higher price than otherwise in the product market. But then there's also power in the labor market. And to some extent, when you're thinking about power in the labor market, the workers increasing their relative power decreases the relative power of the, of the, the firm, of the shareholders, if they're bargaining against each other. But you can definitely have a situation where the firm has a lot of power in the product market that generates a lot of profits, and then the workers have a lot of power 
too, and so share in those profits. And I mean, a canonical example of that would probably be the American auto industry in the 50s, you know, mm -hmm. GM or something. They have a lot of power in the product market, they earn good profits. The workers have power in the labor market, primarily via the UAW union, and right. then sharing those profits. And so, so let's talk, you talked about the 50s, right? So let's pull that thread a little bit. What's the historical kind of context here? In other words, you know, the idea goes that, um, to kind of simplify this, if I'm living in 1955, one parent in a family of four can, can work in the auto plant and support those four people. And today, that one parent, yeah, it's unreasonable for that to assume that that one parent is going to be able to support that family. Now, both mm -hmm. parents need to work, and maybe that other parent needs to also have a a side gig, you know, driving for Uber or something like that. And then maybe they get close enough to be able to afford, let's say a home, right? The quote unquote American dream. So what's the historical context? Like why has worker power declined over time? Um, and, and when did that trend really start happening? Was it the fifties, the late seventies? Yeah. I think it's good to, um, to distinguish here as well between different reasons why this trend mm -hmm. might have happened that you described. So if you look at the median wage, so that's you learn all the workers up in a row, take the middle one, what's happened to their wage over time? Median wage growth was pretty steady. It grew in line with GDP from the 50, well, from the end of the Second World War in the US until about the early 1970s. From about 1973, that median wage starts to grow much more slowly, particularly in the 1980s really bad performance for the median wage but in general it's grown much more slowly since the 70s there was this kind of trend break so that led to the phenomenon you're talking about a typical middle class worker could provide for a family of four on a typical middle class salary in the 50s that's no longer the case today in terms of what we're looking for in um, a family of four's consumption needs you know house healthcare, education um, food other things and why but, did that decline start happening in the 70s? So there's really three buckets of reasons that you can think about. And this is where the worker power argument becomes a hypothesis rather than a proven fact, although we obviously are pretty convinced by it. One bucket is technological change. There's this argument that there was skill biased technological change. And so what that meant was the new technologies we were introducing, particularly computers, particularly automation, were good for the wages of, of workers with a college degree, largely speaking, and were bad for the wages of workers without a college degree because they complemented the work that the college educators workers were doing and they substituted away from the non-college educated workers. So you could explain that entire trend with technology. You could also explain it with globalization. So we've seen massive increases in the trade, uh, particularly in manufacturing with low wage countries, we're obviously seeing a huge outpouring of concern about this, jobs moving overseas, manufacturing communities being eroded. Perhaps that can explain the whole trend. Or you have this worker power argument. And so our argument is that actually what explains much of this trend is the decline in unions. And that's not just affecting the workers who would have been in a union now but aren't, but it's also affecting other people. If you go back to, um, the 1970s or the 1960s, you've got a quarter of the American workforce in the private sector in unions. So the people who are in unions are benefiting from that union power, but also the people who aren't are benefiting because 
if I'm working at a, at a plant that is not unionized, but another plant in my industry is unionized, then the management of my plant is probably going to be worried that we're going to unionize too. And right. so they're going to be willing to pay higher pay, better benefits to incentivize the workers not to unionize. And that's what we would think of as what's called the union threat effect. So the decline of unions had a kind of bigger effect than it looks like if you just look at the raw data, because it not only affects the people who would have been in unions, but also reduces this threat effect everywhere else. Yeah, so it's kind of a cloud effect, right? Um, mm -hmm. But let's let's like I can just kind of ask the why question again, right? So mm -hmm. if the if a decline in union power has resulted in a decline in worker power, a first question like why has union power declined, mm -hmm. and then B, couldn't you just say it's a chicken or the egg issue? Like the decline in worker power has resulted in the decline of unions. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I yeah. guess I just posed two kind of questions that kind of sound the same. <laughs> so I guess, I guess in terms of just the definitional aspect, we're seeing worker power as made up of, of three things, largely. It was the union power. It was this kind of norms aspect I talked about to do with um, the perception that workers should be paid well and that being eroded by the rise of the shareholder value maximization doctrine, the rise of private equity and leverage buyouts. Um, the rise of ruthless management practices. And then it's also the minimum yeah. wage which strengthens worker power. So we're seeing worker power as an overarching phenomenon of which unions is one aspect. But if, it's, if we want to ask about the why, so why did unions decline? Um, there's a lot of scholarship on this and we aren't, the, you know, we aren't the last word on it. But broadly, we think that a lot of it was to do with policy and institutions. So if you look at union membership rates across countries, they've declined across the board in US, Canada, UK, Europe, but at very different rates. And the decline has been remarkably steep in the US relative to other countries. And that's because the policy environment towards unions has been remarkably unsupportive, particularly since the Reagan administration. A lot of people see the breaking of the air traffic controllers strike as this trend break in how the US policy mm -hmm. environment deals with unions. And deregulation as well during the same era probably contributed to it? Yeah, so we can think of deregulation as contributing to the decline in unions as a kind of economic factor destroying profits. So, so one example that's really interesting is the trucking industry. The trucking industry was deregulated um, in the 1980s and profits in trucking fell massively. Also, unions in trucking declined massively. And you could argue that the deregulation of trucking which made it much more competitive, made it much harder for unions to sustain themselves in trucking because it became this competitive disadvantage to be a unionized trucking company because you were really trying to cut all costs you could to stay in the business. So the deregulation aspect was there. I think one thing we'd push back on though is the decline in unionization in the US has been remarkably constant across all industries. And so it looks less like there's a specific industry factor that caused this, like deregulation in trucking or like rising trade in manufacturing. And it looks more like it's a kind of generalized hostility to unions across the board that is leading to this gradual decline. Um, so that's interesting. Let's stick with this union uh, idea for a second longer. So there's, um, I guess there is kind of a contrary, or not a contrary opinion, but there's kind of another side to this. This entire discussion, I'm assuming, I'm making the assumption you're talking about low wage to middle wage workers. 
But then there's a whole other segment of folks that are higher wage workers, professionals, lawyers, doctors, academics, let's say, yeah. a small minority of whom are unionized. What, are, what have been the trends there? Haven't they kind of gained in power over, over the last 30 or 40 years? I think this bifurcation is, is very real. And it depends. You can debate where exactly in the income distribution you want to make this cut off. Is it just the top 1% that have been doing much work better than everyone else? Or is it the top 10% or the top 20%? But you're right to say there's this, there's this upper managerial professional class of occupations that we would think of as, as workers in the sense that they earn their income from labor. They're not just sitting around seeing their stock market portfolio increase. Yeah, or making but, millions of dollars off of a podcast like I obviously do. <laughs> millions of dollars, of course. Exactly. I don't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I spend millions. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right. These, these people have seen and, you know, have seen incomes increase a lot in the last few decades. And so we don't see them as in the same bucket as who we're talking about when we say workers have lost power. What we're really talking about is the vast majority. But if you look at wage trends, you know, most workers who were in unions were not the lowest paid. They were middle income workers doing pretty well, like earning pretty decent salaries, solidly in the middle of the wage distribution. So the big hit to worker power has been at the low and the middle end, but that middle extends quite high. Like maybe we're looking up to the 60th percentile of the wage distribution. For the other group, they were never really in unions, apart from a small segment, as you said. And one could argue that their power hasn't declined because of other kind of socio-cultural factors in the way firms are, are organized, such that they're not, they're not as uh, antagonistic with the interests of shareholders. So, so let's, let's talk about that population still, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm um, a lawyer, um, mm -hmm. nobody's perfect. Um, <laughs> and the, 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 the idea is that, you know, uh, most lawyers, the average median lawyer, whatever, makes a pretty good salary. She doesn't really have to worry about a lot. She's, you know, is doing okay. And the, you know, the, issues that happen in the world, like COVID, the pandemic, they're privileged and they can withstand many of these issues. And that may be true to some extent, but we're also facing an environment, for instance, where it's increasingly difficult to purchase a home, um, you know, where there's been wage stagnation. Um, I don't know of how much wage stagnation has affected that cohort, uh, but I'd be willing to wager that a a lawyer, uh, you know, an entry-level lawyer at a law firm now probably commands less real economic power than an entry-level lawyer 20 years ago. I don't know if that's the case in terms of that cohort of people that I'm talking about. And shouldn't people like that still nonetheless be kind of have, have the option to at least unionize, like even if they have a significant amount of power compared to their middle-income counterparts? Oh, lots of interesting stuff here. So yeah, to caveat, yeah, I'm not much. an expert. No, lots. It's good. I'm not an expert on the legal industry. Um, and I don't know how a lawyer's salary has evolved. Since even like academics 20 years ago. So yeah, I would say but, even like, you know, top line or midline or top line academics, for instance. Yeah. So but one thing I would say is lawyers, uh, doctors, financial professionals, average salaries have increased massively since the 80s. I'm not sure about the trend in the last 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the most interesting and frustrating aspects of our kind of political economy is 
um, housing costs in popular economically thriving cities. And I think you're probably right that relative to um, salary, housing costs for even these very well-off, very privileged professions have gone up in highly desirable, highly economically productive cities, which makes them feel more squeezed and sort of makes them really more squeezed than in the past. Um, this frustrates me because, and this is now beyond the scope of my paper, obviously, but this frustrates me because it's an entirely, it's an entirely political and solvable constraint. Housing costs are really high because there aren't enough houses in New York, in San Francisco, in LA, in Boston, in DC, in all these big cities. If there were more houses, um, these well-off professionals would not be feeling so squeezed. And I think part of the problem plaguing our politics at the moment is that even the well-off feel squeezed and therefore don't feel that inclined to support uh, lots of redistribution right. towards people who really are struggling. Um, in terms of should they be able to unionize, I, I see a kind of ideal world where every group of, of workers has representation. A union is basically just an official form of representation. So I'm, I'm in the newly formed Harvard Graduate Workers Union. And this just, we just unionized, we just got our first contract. I don't see, I don't see the need for that union as because Harvard mm. graduate students are uniquely disprivileged. I just see it that a well-functioning, healthy workplace would have every group's interests formally represented when the decisions are being taken about how to structure that workplace. And that would include lawyers or doctors or financial professionals. Well, congrats on the on the union. I think academia is one of the few places where that's still a viable option, especially for the higher mm -hmm. higher income or more prestigious kind of professionals. Let's switch mm -hmm. gears a little bit to one of the other elements you talked about when you were talking about worker power. So you talked about decline in unions. You also talked about this kind of rise in ruthless, though that's the word you use, ruthless yeah. management practices. Yeah. Wow, that sounds terrible. Are you talking <laughs> about... Um, like, are you talking about the rise of like uh, Gordon Gecko type of folks here in the 80s? What, what's, what, what, what are you referring to when you're saying ruthless management practices? I think everybody who's listening to this will, whether or not they have a ruthless boss, will be like, oh, yes, <laughs> I, I know what she's talking about. Because everybody has, everybody's yes. boss is in some ways ruthless to them. <laughs> Agreed. No, and it's a, it's a deliberately evocative choice of words. And um and provocative too, but we're referring really to, I guess, two buckets of things. One bucket is like financial market driven, which is there are massively increased pressures from capital markets, you know, through private equity takeovers, leverage buyouts that really started kicking off in the 80s um, to take over firms that were being managed inefficiently, cut out the fat and run them much more efficiently. Now, part of that is great, right? We all want an economy that generates more wealth provided it's shared in a fair way. Um, and so stopping managers, you know, buying private jets for themselves with the firm's profits instead of actually doing productive things is great. But part of that, a side effect of that was also cutting down on worker power, cutting down on workers' wages. And so I see the, the, the ruthless side of that as a very unfortunate corollary to what could have been a very productive and efficiency enhancing set of things. So that's one half. Then the other bucket is more directly like how the firm is managing the workers. And in that bucket, you can think of increased kind of corporate monitoring or what some people are even calling corporate surveillance. So tracking workers' productivity, 
technology has made that much easier. Seeing exactly what workers go where, uh, punishing workers for very minor infractions or taking rest breaks when they're not allowed to. Like a, a much more, um, a much more big brother oversight of the workday, which again could be implemented in a way that is very efficiency enhancing and often probably is, but is also reducing workers' autonomy and reducing kind of the quality of the work environment for them, and in many ways reducing their effective compensation for the work that they're putting in. And meanwhile, you know, they have less choice, right? And so it's not like they have greater mobility to switch from a from a job. I mean, that's also reducing their autonomy, right? So if they're working at an Amazon warehouse, let's say, where a lot of this happens, it's one of the mm -hmm. first episodes in the podcast, in fact, mm -hmm. uh, where it's kind of dystopian in how they track uh, worker productivity. Um, it, you know, if you were in Illinois, which is which was our podcast guest, was one of my former students, in fact, mm -hmm. you're in Illinois, uh, you know, Amazon's paying fifteen to twenty dollars an hour, which is one of some of the best wages for unskilled labor there in that in that part of the state. Where else are you going to go, right? Um, so, absolutely. Uh, um, so I um, kind of one thing, I, one string I want to pull apart here is like, what about the incentive of you're talking about like ruthless management? So you're kind of squeezing workers, you're becoming more efficient. Um, and it's it's hitting this middle income cohort the greatest, right? And this is the inequality piece, right? Because people are being shunted either towards lower income quartiles or higher income quartiles, and the and the bell the bell part of the bell curve is kind of like diminishing. Mm -hmm. But doesn't that isn't that in the long run bad for these companies, right? So I mean. Uh, many consumer many consumer goods manufacturers, for instance, survive because they sell stuff to this cohort, let's say 50% of the American working population. Uh, you know, if I'm really wealthy, how many pairs of jeans am I going to buy? I'm only going to buy 10 pairs of jeans. I'm probably going to invest most of the money I have anyway, right? And so as a company that manufactures jeans and other companies, don't I have to, isn't it in my interest to um funnel uh you know keep my workers quote unquote powerful because if this cohort goes away then all we have are Saks fifth avenue stores and dollar stores right just the stores up in the margins mm -hmm. this is a really kind of frontier question and super important this, that's and the only kind of questions i ask on this podcast of course cutting of course. edge, <laughs> cutting edge. <laughs> but i mean i think been a common theory over time that's come in and out of fashion in macroeconomics as to does having high purchasing power for the middle class lead to a stronger macroeconomy? Like, is it in firms' interest actually to have a relatively equally distributed economy because of that exact factor? They need a market for their products. And so, if you look at Henry Ford and his decision to pay high wages to his workers, you know, nearly a century ago. That was in part informed by the idea that a middle class, there needed to be a middle class to be able to buy cars. And so if you were going to make cars, you also needed a middle class to buy them. I think one of the interesting aspects here is a prisoner's dilemma type aspect. It's probably in any individual firm's interest to want there to be a thriving middle class to buy their product, products. But no individual firm is big enough that their actions are going to make a difference in how big that middle class is. And so well, it's probably a race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. There are now, though, right? I mean, the, the deep inequality. Look at Apple. It has the GDP of, you know, countries. 
now. I mean, like Apple certainly could exert some kind of it. Like the top Facebook, Apple, some of these tech giants, even four of them could exert some kind of influence, couldn't they, on that aspect of things? I but don't I guess know not, because yeah. their model is also not one that is highly labor intensive. So you That's have, true. if you had a face, I I don't know the exact stat, but I think the market capitalization as a share of total stock market cap of the top firms today is relatively similar to what it was in the 50s i think i don't know that for sure uh, but the top firms i do know are much less labor intensive mm -hmm. so the apple the facebook the googles use very little labor in this country and the labor that they do use in this country is almost entirely mm -hmm. very highly educated and so they can't yeah. do much in terms of their pay in terms of their pay decisions that would strengthen the middle class there's True. other things they could do in terms of lobbying uh, in terms of advocating for different policies, but it's only really Amazon of the big tech companies that actually employs um, non-college educated workers in any. Sense. Where do you fall on this argument? I mean, are you are you um, are you of the opinion that um, you know middle class worker power should be increased, and doing so is in the interests of uh, corporate enterprise, or are you on the other side? I'm definitely of the opinion that middle class worker power should be increased. I care a lot about inequality and a fair distribution of the proceeds of growth. And I think the, the situation we have now is clearly not fair. Um, I don't know if I believe it's in the interests of corporate America, I, just to be quite honest. I don't know where I stand mm. on this macroeconomic argument, but I think it's in the interest of the nation as a whole to redistribute income quite substantially towards middle and low income workers and that rising worker power is a way to do that. It might have the happy macroeconomic consequence that it also leads to faster and more thriving um, growth because of this demand effect, but that wouldn't be the reason that I would do it. So are it, uh, what we've seen in the stock market with the pandemic lately, is that another indication of things going the opposite way? In other words, concentration of, of wealth and, and power you know, in the top 10, 25% of American, of the American workforce? I think it's definitely a stark illustration of, of the trends that have been happening more broadly. We, uh, we see the stock market, particularly the, um, the valuations of the top tech companies, right? Mm -hmm. Rising so much, even since before the pandemic. And we see at the same time, the, for, the fortunes of essential workers, you know, diminishing mass unemployment, very precarious working conditions, low pay, um, inability to protect even their health from a pandemic on the job. So I would see that, I would see that trend as a, a stark illustration that I hope it's not possible for anyone to ignore of underlying trends that were already present. But we're seeing a lot of these corporations, let's take Amazon in particular, because they're big enough for me to pick up. I mean, like mm -hmm. offering all of these benefits, right? Um, quote unquote benefits to their workers in the pandemic, you know, um, increased vacation, time off, additional pay, uh, maybe some increased health benefits for the first month of the pandemic, and then kind of rolling them back. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, um, you know, and there's all this kind of heroism surrounding essential workers, you know, they're kind of heroes, and they are heroes in many ways. But is there, do you think that we are going to end up in a permanent state of in some is there going to be kind of a blip on the radar that shows if we're graphing this you know there's some kind of increase in worker power because of the pandemic or are your predictions quite the opposite 
if you'd interviewed me in March, I probably would have said, I hope so. Um, there was this big upswell of union mm -hmm. organizing and of strikes and of protests by workers who were rightly angry that they were being you know, forced to work in untenable working conditions. Almost without exception, those were not successful. And I think that, again, is an illustration of the lack of legal protections and power uh, for workers. I hope that this will be a turning point in public opinion and political opinion, um, because what's really needed is legally to strengthen workers' ability to organize. The demand is there. Surveys suggest that the majority of workers want some kind of representation, probably a union. The, the strikes and the union organizing efforts during the pandemic illustrated that, but the way it's played out over the last five to six months makes me less optimistic than um, I would like to be. Sad to kind of hear that from an expert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the upside, if we want an upside or a silver lining is, I think- Yeah, yeah, let's have one. What's happened in the last six months makes this impossible for people to ignore. And I think a lot of people saw the very blatant union busting activity by mm. a lot of very big mm. companies during the pandemic and thought, that there was no excuse for it in a way that in a normal time one might have been able to construct an argument in favor um and i think a lot of people's opinions have probably been moved and to get political change you need public opinion to be in support um and strongly so so that's a hopeful trend thank you for that so, yeah, there we go. <laughs> silver lining is always good uh, especially yeah. as we're kind of nearing our, our time a couple more questions for you you mentioned the minimum wage Mm -hmm. right as kind of one additional driver i mean i guess wages in totality yeah. but then minim the minimum wage in particular for low lower income uh workers mm -hmm. kind of driving worker power but isn't there a relatively simplistic argument that if i increase the minimum wage by two dollars or ten percent or whatever that then the you know then that'll just increase kind of prices will increase and it's kind of a a pointless enterprise so is the minimum wage just kind of a are you looking at it as kind of a catch-up situation that we just have to increase the minimum wage merely to catch up with costs of goods let's say uh it's it's kind of one of the longest standing debates in economics as to you know what effects not being an economist has. i guess i keep hitting on these long-standing debates i have no uh, idea what i'm talking about but. i mean it's, it's all the all the key issues right so in one, in one way of looking at the world and in one set of labor market conditions, a rise in the minimum wage can be totally counterproductive because A, it might um, reduce employment by increasing firms' employment costs. If every worker costs more, you hire fewer of them. And it might lead to increase in prices, as you say. And so you know, if workers are uh, then faced with higher prices, that might totally negate any effect of the higher minimum wage. That tends to be, if you think about the theory behind it, that would tend to be in markets which are very competitive, um, both on the labor market side and the product market side. If you have uh, any measure of, going back to the very beginning of this conversation, any measure of kind of excess profits in a firm, or what economists would call monopsony power, which is like the equivalent of monopoly power, but in a labor market, then you actually have scope to increase the minimum wage somewhat um, without having too many of these negative employment consequences. And so the key issue with the minimum wage is really an empirical one, which is which labor markets are characterized by the former set of conditions and which are characterized by the latter. A lot of the research going on right now suggests that relative to the current level of the minimum wage, I mean, the federal minimum wage is 
the lowest it's been in real terms for a very long time. Yeah, Relative to that current level, increasing the minimum wage somewhat seems unlikely to have major employment consequences. But it's, it's very unclear whether it would have negative consequences if we raise it very high. Even the fight for 15, $15 minimum wage in many labor markets seems like it would be fine. A $15 minimum wage um, in very low income areas with very few highly productive firms may well have negative knock-on consequences and then you're trading off one against mm. the other. Well, that's interesting. Um, I, I'd like to, if, if there is some scholarship on that second part about increasing mm -hmm. minimum wage in, um, let's just use the word, less developed parts of the country, mm -hmm. uh, would have negative knock-on effects. I'd be interested in reading that. Maybe our listeners would be too. So we'll, we'll try to share um, some links in the show notes on that. I right. guess the last question I want to ask you is kind of stepping outside of the country, outside of the United States, which you know we tend to focus on in on this podcast and in the newsletter. But um, what about you? You've mentioned globalization as well, right? Mm -hmm. And you've talked about the decline in worker power. You know, we, we, but are changes in kind of uh, globalization? Would you say that changes in kind of the, the or, or increased globalization, is that one of the driving uh, trends towards the decline in worker power, both domestically and abroad? It's definitely a factor. I mean, it's been this huge trend that shaped I guess, the global think, economy. Yeah. yeah, no, it's definitely a factor, but um, some people would argue it's the only factor and would push back against that. So clearly, if a company now has an ability to move its plant overseas and manufacture more cheaply there, it's going to be more difficult for American workers to be paid high wages by that company. There's definitely an effect on worker power. Uh, but the question is, how big was that relative to the other trends that we have seen? And there are two quite simple kind of ways of looking at the data that can help illustrate this. One is Germany, uh, for example, lots of other countries have seen always the same Germany. trends in globalization. I know right now it's always Germany, but Germany has also been exposed to globalization and Germany has seen much less of a decline in unionization and union power. Some decline, but much less. So it can't all be globalization in the U.S., and the second is globalization really applies to manufacturing. And when we think about unions, we typically think about manufacturing, but actually uh, transportation industries like trucking or construction industries in the US were really highly unionized as well. And their unionization has declined basically at the same speed as the decline in manufacturing unionization in the US. So again, it suggests that it wasn't international trade exposure that was the defining cause. All right, so last, I guess, question, which is, what are the levers of powers we can kind of manipulate or encourage to increase worker power? So I think we should start by having kind of two meta principles. One is you can't rely on firms to do this themselves. This has to come from government. This is not just Sounds because like socialism I have... to me, Anna. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a European. We're all socialists in Europe. so. <laughs> um, but it's not that I think I have a dim view of firm management. It's just that mm. whenever you have the ability for some firms to undercut others by eroding workplace standards, the firms that want to pay well and give workers power can't afford to. That's so right. it has to come from government is the first meta principle. It's nice that the business roundtable is enacting these principles about stakeholder value, but fundamentally, it has to come from government. And the second meta principle, and we haven't touched on this so much, is 
In some circumstances, more worker power can lead to more unemployment. We talked about this with the minimum wage, but it's a similar dynamic with unions. If you raise the price of labor, you can reduce the hiring of labor. And we it's don't like the want- gumming up the works? Is that what you're kind of, if I was simplified that, that principle, is it? To no, some extent. Yeah. It's just, it's making people more expensive to hire. And so firms are gonna find ways to produce what they need to produce with fewer people. Um, we don't want to increase unemployment. So the other meta principle I think should be, how can we increase worker power maximally with minimal effects on unemployment and while thinking about the type of unemployment. So what we really don't want to create is a two tier labor market where some people are just excluded from economic opportunity. Um, and then other people have decent jobs with you know, decent union benefits. Um, within those two meta principles, the favorite policy proposal that I have is a combination of sectoral bargaining and introducing worker representation onto corporate boards. This is again, not in our paper, but uh, these are I my like views. That. I Sounds think like that- a good paper too. <laughs> maybe that's the next one. I think these would, um, these would maximize kind of increased worker power both in terms of wage bargaining but also like other firm decisions and technology adoption where to locate plants what to do in terms of the local community um but will also minimize the employment impacts and a, not an insignificant representation right i mean we're not talking about like one vote on the board you're talking about something a little bit more substantial like the model yes. we see for instance with federally qualified health clinics in the United States where they receive federal funding. In many cases, they have to have 30 to 40% of the voting board be uh, either patients, they come from the patient population or from some other kind of community-based um, enterprise that's served by the clinic. Exactly, we're talking significant representation. I think one of the things that people are the most surprised about when I talk to them about this is when I say that large German companies are mandated to have 50% of their corporate board be worker representatives. Wow. And yet they manage to be functional countries in a capitalist global, functional companies in a capitalist global economy. And quite so, successful even, beyond functional, you know, more than functional. Indeed, right? more than functional. Highly competitive, highly effective. There's new research by some economists at MIT and Berkeley that find... Um, good evidence on the effect of having workers on corporate boards in Germany. And so if we're thinking, what is the optimal level? I don't know the exact number, but I would say yes, very substantial. And that that seems to be able to happen without substantially negative uh, side effects. Well, well that sounds great. You. Yeah, it's been great uh, to meet you. you. Thanks so for much. the discussion. And I, yeah, I really likewise. like your podcast. I'm really pleased to be on it, so thanks. Oh, really? Okay, glad, I'm glad you like it. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're just getting started, but... Uh, but um, yeah, it's, it's been doing well. The newsletter, uh, I'm very gratified, is, is now signed. We now have 8,000 subscribers and we're Fantastic. about 10K listeners per episode on the podcast. So we're moving up at a, at Fantastic. a good clip. So. That is a good clip. There aren't that many episodes yet. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, for 13 to have that many. We've had some very phenomenal, we've had some phenomenal guests. I think yeah. that's been helpful. What's happening in the world mm -hmm. is also leading to that as well. But, uh, but, you know, when we have guests like you, people want to, people want to chime in and listen, so. Well, that's very flattering, but thank you. <laughs> hey, thank you for listening to another episode of Unfair Nation. I'm sure you're bored at home and social distancing, and I have just the thing you can do. Join the now 7,000 strong Unfair Nation 
Sign up for our newsletter, check out our huge 11-episode back catalog, and subscribe to the podcast as well for notifications when the latest episode drops. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe, and we'll get through this.